0: Thank mm-hmm. you. Welcome to A Slice of Medieval, where history meets historical fiction. I'm Derek Burks, best-selling author of historical fiction.
1: And I'm Sharon Bennett-Connolly, best-selling author of historical non-fiction. Today's episode, we're going to look at the 11th century in England. We've been wondering what made England ripe for invasion by two foreign powers in 1066, and whether it was the events of the earlier part of the 11th century, leading up to the accession of Edward the Confessor in 1042, that made England vulnerable to such invasions. England, from the year 1000 to the year 1050, had something like six kings. Three were Danish and three were Anglo-Saxon. So England itself was already a bit of a melting pot. By the time 1066 comes along. So we're not really going to look at the events of 1066. We all know William the Conqueror invaded, Harold Hardrada invaded, and poor Harold II Godwinson had to fight battles in Yorkshire and then run back down to Hastings to lose uh, the Battle of Hastings against William the Conqueror.
0: What I would say is that the other thing we need to bear in mind is this, this kind of dual culture which England has from the last few centuries, where England was divided between the English and the Danes, and had only really come together relatively recently. So that when Ethelred became king, Æthelred II, known as the Unready, or Unrad, meaning ill-advised, so when he becomes king, he inherited a split culture, and the problems of the past continue because in the early part of the 11th century, the Vikings are still regularly invading England.
1: Yeah, I think people also don't realise that England as England was very new. It hadn't been around that long. I think it was, was it 948, the Battle of Brunenborough, which is the moment that people think of as King Athelstan making England. Until that point, you had various different kingdoms, and, and you had Wessex was the basis of the reconquest of England from the Vikings, basically. But it had only been completed in 948. Athelred comes on the throne, I think it's only 30 years later. So I don't think people realise that England was still a very new concept.
0: Yes, absolutely. I think this is a lot to do with the problems that occur in 1066 in the end, because England is new and it's fragile. Any new institution or state is fragile. And unfortunately for England, the man who faced these difficulties wasn't really up to it.
1: No, and if you look at that, you look at the fact that there was this weak king on the throne and england who wasn't which wasn't united it didn't have a history yet that they could all see as a common history there were plenty of danes living in england in mainly in the danelaw but in other areas as well london was incredibly cosmopolitan and had been forever so you have these all these disparate societies living in this one land So that when the Vikings did invade regularly to take land and to steal treasure, there wasn't this united front against them, because some of the people were Danish anyway, so they'd welcome them. Others were looking out for themselves because they'd had to. That was what they were used to. There wasn't a united England that they could band it together, so they would have to look out for themselves. And some of them would pay the Vikings off to not raid their lands and go next door.
0: Yeah, you mentioned the different Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, which obviously were united by Athelstan. So if you're living in England, even if you're not actually living in the Danelaw, which is the the northeastern part of the kingdom established in earlier centuries, You would think of yourself, probably, as a Mercian, or a man of Wessex, or, for that matter, a woman of Wessex, or an East Anglian.
1: Yeah, or Northumbrian. Or
0: Northumbrian. It's very regional still. Yes. And when the Vikings attack obviously they they attack a particular place and it's not necessarily perceived even that this is an attack on england no they're attacking that particular area so the rest of the english might not necessarily be rushing to help defend that area so it's very difficult for ethelred to manage that yeah And the other thing is, other areas, especially Mercia and Northumberland,
1: have their own challenges and their own borders to guard. They can't go fighting off Viking invaders when they've got to guard against the Scots and the Welsh.
0: Yes, that's right.
1: You have East Anglia and Wessex. It's like, well, you've got to look out for yourselves because we're looking north or we're looking west and you're the ones... Who are guarding against the Vikings. And it didn't help Ethelred. The Normans would actually help the Vikings in that they'd be allowed to winter on Norman land so that they can then invade England the following spring when the tides changed.
0: Yes. And of course, Ethelred has a cunning plan <laughs> that if he marries a northern woman, he will hopefully stop. Normandy from being a refuge for the Vikings yeah and so this is where we first come across Emma of Normandy yep. who becomes a, a pivotal figure really in English history of this period and he marries her she's his his second wife in the hope that the marriage will solve the problem Of the Vikings spending their winter In Normandy mm. Unfortunately it had absolutely no effect On that problem at all No, it didn't work
1: <laughs> And so then he starts trying to Well then he he decides on An even more cunning plan um, So he marries Emma in something Like the April of 1002 And then November 1002 There's this absolutely Baldrick would have thought that he was stupid Plan to murder every day living in England. (laughs) It's like, what on earth did you think that would do?
0: (laughs) Yes, because the Danish population, whilst many lived in the northeastern part of the country of the Danelaw, nevertheless, as happens over time, many Danes had settled elsewhere in England. So ordering the death of all male Danes in England outside the Danelaw is quite ridiculous and clearly was not going to help.
1: And there is a question as well, whether or not it was all male Danes or just all Danes. The Danelaw was safe. It wasn't the Danelaw area, which is Eastern Mercia. The people in the Danelaw were safe, but all the other Danes. um, i say I'm not sure that the order was just for the men, because one of the people killed by some stroke of really bad luck for Ethelred was Swain Fortbeard's sister. And Swain Fortbeard, the king of Denmark. Yeah. (laughs) And... really powerful threat to Ethelred in the first place, and then suddenly Ethelred murders his sister. So it's like right, you thought you were going to end everything by killing all these Danes, but you've actually just escalated the war because now Swain's mad.
0: Yeah, I think I mean it was obviously not a good plan to start with. It's it's a plan as well, which emphasizes the differences between the two cultures and doesn't really attempt to unify them. So it, it basically makes things worse.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good point actually, that he doesn't there is no attempt to unify England under one king where everybody is English because they're living here. It's still this idea that us and them, the English and the Dane. And you're always going to have if you're going to treat them like that, and treat the Danes living in England as the enemy then you're never going to be able to unify the country and have everybody behind you.
0: Yeah if you treat someone as an enemy they will be an enemy.
1: Yeah and the problem is they're an enemy within your walls so you can't actually guard against them because they're here already they're not going to invade they're already here.
0: Yeah yeah I mean his his normal plan his usual method of dealing with the Vikings was to pay them to go away yeah. mainly because mm-hmm. he could couldn't actually defeat them, or or perhaps couldn't defeat them heavily enough yeah. to deter them from attacking at all. Now, to be fair to Ethelred, he wasn't the first English king to do that. Others in the past had uh, paid the Vikings to go away.
1: I think even Alfred had done it at one stage. Yeah. It was common practice to pay them yeah. to not um, ravage the shores, basically. It was like, you know, here you go, here's £10,000 or whatever and um, go away. And they usually did.
0: Well, who wouldn't? They
1: were basically gangsters. It was just extortion, wasn't
0: it? Yeah, but whereas Alfred and his successors were trying to avoid conflict, and at the very least, if they had conflict, they tried to ensure that they were in such a strong position that they might actually win. But Æthelred wasn't able to do either. So paying them to stave off a problem was just delaying it, and he could never actually solve. Of it by defeating them. And what he tried to do tended to encourage division, not unity. Yeah. And that's where we get to Swain Forkbeard deciding that is enough is enough.
1: Yeah, and eventually he actually seizes the throne um, from Ethelred. Ethelred has to flee to Normandy with Emma, his wife, Emma of Normandy, and um, their sons Edward and Alfred. Yeah. Unfortunately for Swain, his victory was short-lived because. Because of a particularly nasty fall from his horse. So then you have this situation where the Danes in England want Swain's son, Canute, to be king, but Canute's only 18. So the Anglo-Saxons are like, actually, um, we don't know this Canute, and he's very young. We'd rather have better the devil you know. So they send the Witten sends for Ethelred and asks him to agree to rule better than he had done before. And it's actually um not Ethelred who comes over, it's Edward. Ethelred sends his teenage son Edward as his representative to the Witten to make the promises that he would rule better than he did before, that he would be king, the and um, all this agreement is with Edward. Uh, once the agreement's made, then Ethelred comes back to England. Um, but he still ends up having to fight to hold on to the throne. And there's this instance. I think it was in early 1016, where Edmund Ironside, his eldest surviving son by that point, um, is raising armies to fight the Danes. But the armies won't fight because he's raising them rather than the king. And there's this incident where he's got an army ready to fight. And they all turn around and say, well, no, because the king's not here. Ethelred, I think he was um, ill at that time, about to die sort of thing. But the army had to be disbanded because they wouldn't fight except under the king. Even if it's the king's eldest son and heir, it's not the king. They want the king there with them, leading them, sharing the danger with them and showing that he wants to fight for his throne as much as they do.
0: It emphasises the the personal nature of kingship in this period doesn't it we see this throughout the medieval period that if the king himself isn't either isn't there or isn't taking charge then people are very reluctant to go along with it well then we have the the odd situation when ethelred dies as you said edmund his only surviving son succeeds him and we've got edmund versus canute we've got these two 18 year olds going toe to toe for control of england except it's a bit of a stalemate neither can actually deliver a knockout blow to the other yeah so surprise surprise they decide to divide the country between them with canute having basically the danelaw and edmund having the rest but part of that agreement that I still find difficult to understand is that they also agreed that if one of them died the other would succeed them and five minutes later Edmund died.
1: Yeah they both had yeah they both had sons by this time so it wasn't like they didn't have somebody to leave their part of the kingdom too either you know I mean they were babies they were children but they were still sons who could continue the line but instead they do this agreement where yep yeah, if I die you can be king and if you die I can be king <laughs> like all right all you've got now is waiting to see which one finishes the other one off first
0: yeah i mean one of the features of this whole period of 30 or 40 years is that there are plenty of sons Mm. everyone's got sons until we get to the middle of the century yeah so we end up with canute ruling the whole of england and that does bring stability of a sort because he's a strong ruler
1: yeah and he's young and he's got well, he gets about another he's got 50 20 nearly 20 years on the throne now so cuz he's young he's got the time to build up his strength and to create policies that start uniting england yeah and he's quite astute as well can you we don't know where emma was after ethelred died either she'd returned to normandy which seems i think is is quite unlikely i think that she was probably in england with her two sons edward and alfred and can you make this deal with emma where her sons would be safe and sent off to Normandy if she married him. Now Emma had been Queen of England from 1002 to 1016, so she must have known the ins and outs of ruling the kingdom as any as much as any wife would. You know, she'd been to bed with Ethelred, and they'd probably talked overnight or in the evenings about what was going on and that. So. And she knew the court, so she would be a useful ally to Canute if he could get her on his side. But there's always this question with Emma as to whether or not she had a choice in marrying Canute. Did she, was it marry me or, or go to live in Normandy or with your sons or marry me or I kill your sons? I'm not sure she had much choice. If Canu had decided he was going to marry her, I'm not sure she had a way of saying no.
0: No, that could well be the case, couldn't it? So he marries her. And so if you like the line of he has another wife, doesn't he?
1: It's one of those idiosyncrasies of this period. Polygamy
0: rules in the 11th century.
1: Canute had two wives. Harold Hardrada had two wives. And Harold Godwinson had two wives. And there's this idea that they married the first wife, except for in Hardrada's case, which is the other way around, was married more Danico, either in the Danish fashion. So they didn't have a Christian Wedding,
0: and fasted, yes. Which
1: meant that they could be put aside if necessary. And Canute's um, first wife, Elfgifer of Northampton, um, had supposedly... Although, if you would believe the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle didn't, two sons by Canute. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle suggests that they weren't Canute's sons. But I'm not sure Canute would have spent so much time on these two boys if he thought there was any chance of them not being his sons. I think it's likely they were. And he sent one off, Swain, with his mother to Norway, to govern Norway as um, regent for Canute. And the other one, Harold Harefort, stayed with Canute and would eventually succeed him. So then you've got Canute marrying Emma and producing a second family with um, a son, Hartha Canute, and a daughter who goes on to marry the Holy Roman Emperor, which just goes to show how powerful and influential Canute must have been by this time. He actually travelled to Rome. He's the only king of England, I think it is, who has been present at a papal coronation.
0: Yeah, I mean, among all the kings before 1066, I don't think there's much doubt that Canute was the most effective. Not that he had a lot to beat.
1: Well, he ruled. England, Denmark and Norway, you know, we were part of this Danish empire. Yeah,
0: and I think there's a strength in that as well. And there's a sense of unity of some sort during his reign, or the latter stages of it. Mm -hmm. So despite the fact that you've got these two lines of descent from Canute, you've got Harold Harefoot from his first wife and then you've got a canute from his marriage to emma now you would think that that is going to create chaos and warring factions mm. but although it does in a way in terms of england and its long-term future that is not a major problem there are immediate problems but harold harefoot rules and then harthur canute rules for a while. But a Canute, like Harold Harefoot, dies childless. So you haven't got this ongoing dispute between two bloodlines from Canute. Whether later that turns out to be a disadvantage, I don't know. But it doesn't actually create a problem when a Canute dies, because there are still quite a lot of male heirs floating about in Europe, <laughs> yeah. and one of those, Edward, who we know as Edward the Confessor. He comes back uh, in 1042.
1: Now he's already in England. He came back, he was invited back by Harthacanute in 1041 to actually be established as Harthacanute's heir. Yeah. So Harthacanute knew he wasn't going to have children or assumed he wasn't going to have children or something. So he invites his older half-brother back so that when he dies in 1042, Edward's already on side and just takes over the reins. Yeah, and the
0: point's the same, really, that that there isn't a crisis. You'd expect there to be a crisis because the Danish kings have died childless.
1: Yeah, you would. And it's funny because when you look at the early part of the century, I mean, history
0: would have told them
1: that there would be unrest, and yet there wasn't. It was just, all right, Arthur Canute's gone? We'll have Edward back then.:
0: <laughs> Yeah, and I guess if you were in the more Danish populated part of England, you would be thinking, well, well, this guy, Edward, is probably worth a go, because there are no other obvious Danish successors. Yeah. And if you're, if you're English, you're thinking, this is good in a sense, because although Canute ruled well, we're returning to the bloodline of king alfred the, the original anglo-saxon line restored
1: and i suppose in everybody's hearts there's the hope that he's not as bad as his dad was
0: yeah i don't think he was as bad as his father ethelred <laughs> but on the other hand he didn't have any sons either uh, but that's a slightly different story so in 1042 edward the confessor is on the throne and stability of a sort returns. So if you were a subject of King Edward in the 1040s or or even the early 1050s, and someone said to you, well, in 1066, a Norman Duke will be ruling England, you would think they're an idiot because it's just unthinkable. And that's only a couple of decades away. So I guess we now need to consider, well, if, if 1042 brought stability, Why did that stability not carry on forward for many years?
1: I think the thing is, the lack of an heir was a really big question. In all of this, if when Edward had married Edith of Wessex and they'd produced a son or two, that would have been it. Yeah, yeah. history would have been changed forever. You know, we wouldn't have had 1066. No. We would have had the continuing line of Edward the Confessor, possibly for centuries. But because... It's this old thing. You can understand why kings wanted a male heir. And you see what happens when they don't have one, like with Edward the Confessor. When he dies, the crown, there was no obvious successor. There was no one there. There was one boy, Edgar the Athling, who was 14, I think, in 1066. So it was questionable as to whether he was actually old enough to take the throne. And some did declare for him. But in the end, he didn't have the backing and he didn't have the military experience. So Edgar's really out of the picture, even before he has a chance. If Edward had managed to live on for another 10 years, it would have been a different story. Edgar would have been able to just succeed him and the line would continue again. But it's because of this lack of an appropriate male heir that causes all the problems.
0: It's often been said at various times in history that Edward didn't have any sons because he wasn't terribly interested and he possibly didn't even sleep with his his wife Edith, so there were never going to be any sons. Now, it seems to me that if Edward bothered to come back and be king, he would know... And get married. And get married, yes, absolutely. That he would know that his prime objective was to get an heir. All kings knew that. So I just don't believe that, that Edward, despite us all calling him Edward the Confessor and he was supposed to be so saintly, I don't believe that he wasn't actually trying to get an heir.
1: No, I don't either. I think it just didn't happen for them. But. Um, well, I- I think that they must have tried. There's no way they didn't try. And Edith's mum had had something like, well, did we work it out? Six boys and three girls, I think it was. So she'd come from a, fam- a family that had, you know, was fairly fertile.
0: Good stock, good breeding stock.
1: Yeah, exactly, which is what a king looked for in a wife.
0: Yeah, yeah. So
1: he must have considered that when he married Edith. So I think it was just something that. They did try for, but it just didn't happen
0: for them. Now, there was another potential heir from the Alfred bloodline, who was Edward, who was the son of Edmund Ironside. And he and his brother were the two youngsters who had been taken out of the country, uh, supposedly to be killed, but eventually ended up in Eastern Europe. And it's worth saying, perhaps making a general point at this stage that in the mid-11th century, England was not the center of the universe. England was, in fact, just a tempting little titbit off the western coast of Europe, and it was of no consequence whatsoever to the main powers of Europe, which essentially, at that time, uh, were the Byzantine Empire, the Holy Roman Empire, which is largely modern Germany and Italy, and states like Poland, Hungary, and and Kievan Rus'. This was where civilization was in the mid 11th century. This is where the educated folk were. Yep. The funny thing is, years ago, when I when I first heard that uh, Edward the Exile that was in Hungary, I was saying to myself, what the heck was he doing in Hungary? As if that was the back end of nowhere. But it wasn't. It was a place where you would want to be.
1: Yeah, yeah. And you have these instances. I mean, Margaret, St. Margaret, who was Edward the Exile's daughter, um, was well-versed in actually talking to... The great and the good throughout Europe, because she'd grown up in Hungary and been educated in Hungary and exposed to great thinkers, church thinkers in Hungary. And you have this instance where Anna of Kiev, who married Henry I of France, she's the sophisticated one. Um, who can sign her own name on her marriage contract, whereas Henry, the King of France, um, which was very small at the time, the the Kingdom of France at the time was made up of loads of duchies and counties that owed sort of nominal service to the King of France, but he had control of a very small part of France itself. So you look at the way England had been divided by Saxons and Danish infighting for decades, France was not what it is now. It was just the area around Paris and then a whole load of duchies and counties. It's understandable that Eastern Europe, where you've got Hungary, Kievan Rus, the Holy Roman Empire and all the centralised areas, they're the ones with the influence. But it was funny the way he'd ended up there, because when his dad died in 1016, Edmund Ironside, him and his younger brother, they were toddlers or babies. You know, one was a baby and one was a toddler. And Canute didn't want them anywhere near him and certainly didn't want them to inherit. So he sent them to the King of Sweden and ordered that they be executed or murdered or smothered, I think he probably expected. Um, but the King of Sweden balked at the idea of killing babies, as you do, most people do, as Canute had done. And I mean, if you want them job doing, do it yourself or don't do it, or, you know. And so... Sweet, the king of Sweden sent him off, sent them off to Kiev and Rus to Yaroslav the Wise, way out of reach of Canute, hopefully, and to be raised there. And then, when they grow up, they get asked to help out in a war by I think he's I think it was King Andrew of Hungary. And um, Edward married a princess, uh, either Kievan or Hungarian. Nobody seems to know exactly where this Agatha comes from and has children of his own and then I don't know when Edward discovered that his nephew was still alive that's a big question that he sends for his nephew in the 1050s and he arrives in England in 1057 but did he always know that this nephew was around or had he discovered it during I don't know maybe one of his church leaders had gone to Rome and been talking to a bishop from Hungary who said oh did you Oh, we've got Edward, you know, and you just wonder how Edward the Confessor found out about Edward the Exile, or had he always known?
0: Yeah, it makes sense either way, doesn't it? Mm. Because if it, if Edward decided he hadn't had any sons, there was a possibility he wouldn't have a male heir by the mid-1050s. If he already knew where Edward was, it makes sense that he he then sent for him. Equally, if he'd only just found out, it makes sense that he just sent for him. Yeah, because Ed was the solution to all his problems. Absolutely.
1: I haven't got an heir. I've got this grown man in Hungary who is obviously an experienced soldier and has children of his own. Yeah. So he's
0: perfect. Absolutely perfect. There's only one teeny problem, and that's that about five minutes after he arrived in England, he died. Yeah. And when you look back and you, and you look for pivotal moments in the century, uh, you think if ever there was one, that was it. Yeah. Because he was tailor made to succeed his uncle Edward. And had he done so, we would not be talking about the Norman conquest.
1: No, because he was a grown man with military experience. Yeah. He was- Perfect. He could take over from Edward the Confessor in a moment. And it would have been, you know, it would have just been smooth sailing.
0: Yeah. And also you can't see a situation particularly. and You can't see any uh, factions in England necessarily opposing him. No. Though his sudden death is always a bit of a worry. <laughs> so Edward, anyway, the solution to all the problems doesn't work out. No. So we have Edward the Confessor still without an heir in the late 1050s. Also, he's he's got other problems problems, hasn't he? Because Earl Godwin and his sons are extremely powerful within the state, and sometimes Edward feels it would be better if some of his Norman advisers, with whom he identified because obviously he had spent a long time in Normandy, been brought up there, he thinks that maybe some of his Norman advisers, like Robert of Jumierge and others, would be better for him, would yeah. balance things a bit.
1: Yeah, he he listens to his Norman advisers more than he does the Godwinsons. And unfortunately, there was this incident in, I think it was 1050, where he actually forced the Godwinsons out of England. And they fled to Ireland and Flanders. I mean, like we say, the Godwinsons, there was Godwin Gither, who was... Um, related to the Danish royal family. Her nephew was ruling Denmark.
0: She was Goldwyn's wife, yes?
1: Yeah, um, but she was King Canute's sister-in-law, I think it was. So she, she herself had quite powerful connections. And then they had these six children. Swain, the eldest, who was... Um,
0: a bit of a tear away.
1: <laughs> yeah, he, he was the um, he was the black sheep of the family. And then you had Harold, Tostig, Leithwin, Girth, and I think the youngest was called Wolfstan.
0: Yes, I think so.
1: But he had been taken as hostage by Edward the Confessor and put yep. into the custody of Robert of Jumiech. So when the Godwinsons were forced to flee England, they had to leave this young man behind and Swain's son, Hakon, was also with Wulstan. So the two youngest Godwinsons, a son and a grandson, were left behind in Edward's custody. But then when they forced their way back in 1051, they basically sailed up the Thames and had a face-off with Edward. I'm pretty sure they'd probably already got in touch with the other earls in the kingdom and asked what they were going to do if they came back because nobody wanted a battle and the reason they'd left in 1050 was to avoid uh, an all-out battle where most of them would get killed and nobody would be a winner so when they came back in 1051 they had this face-off with Edward, and Edward was probably prepared to go to war, but the earls behind him said, we are not going to fight Englishmen. We're not going to go to a civil war for this. It's not worth it. So Edward had to give in and allow the Godwinsons back. Um, At the same time as the Godwinsons are coming in one gate into London, Robert of Jumiege is flying out of another one on his way back to Normandy with the two Godwinson boys with him, and he takes them back to Normandy as hostages. And suddenly... Edward's not got his Norman advisors. The Godwinsons are back, which is great except now, you know, he's got to deal with them. His wife, he'd sent to a nunnery when he'd exiled the Godwinsons, so he suddenly had to get her back as well. He was forced to reinstate Edith as queen. And it was a really weak moment for Edward that his earls on both sides had forced his hand because even the ones on his side had turned around and said, we're not going to war over this, so you've got to sort it.
0: Yeah, I I mean, it's reminiscent of some of the, the... The later problems of the monarchy in the medieval period you've got a king who's not a particularly strong personality and is unable to force his most important subjects his earls to do what he wants them to do and when he becomes king he's very reliant on earl godwin mm-hmm. and i suppose we should compliment the earls, in respect to the fact that they weren't prepared to have a bloodbath in 1051, and there was a degree of unity of purpose there. They all had their own axe to grind, and certainly Leofric, Earl of Mercia, did not want the power of Earl Godwin to be enhanced in any way, if he could avoid it. But there was a group of earls who were basically deciding what would happen rather than the king deciding what would happen. And that's always a dangerous situation, I think, for a king to have.
1: Yeah, it is. And I think also you have to look at the fact that he was influenced by other people, like Robert Trishumiage, and also his wife. I mean, we were talking about the Godwinsons. When the Earl of Northumberland, Seawood, dies, Edward's wife Edith persuades him to make her favourite brother, Tostig, Earl of Northumberland, despite the fact he seems wholly unsuited for living in the North and fighting Scots.
0: Yeah, I I think uh, this is in 1065. This is the period when one of the great ironies of this reign is that when Earl Godwin dies, again, quite suddenly, which is a bit worrying. But when he dies, Edward's probably thinking, well, this is an opportunity for me to assert myself a little bit. But it's rather like cutting off the head of the mythical Hydra. Because instead of one Earl Godwin, you've now got half a dozen of his sons, who together proved to be very, very influential in what happens in the kingdom from then on. Yeah,
1: yeah. And they're all spread out as well, you know, because Harold's got Wessex. One of his brothers gets Hereford, I think it is. Yeah. You know.
0: Another one had East Anglia, I think.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: and Tostig's got Northumbria.
1: He's managed to surround himself, by Godwinson's.
0: Yes, it's funny. It's a little bit of a powder keg in the sense that you've got really a new generation of earls. Because when Leofric dies, Earl of Mercia, obviously a very important uh, big area of the country, and he's succeeded in time by his grandson, Edwin. Yeah,
1: Edwin takes Mercia mercy,
0: yeah. Eventually. And so it's the young bloods in a way mm. in the 1060s because all the troubles in Northumbria yeah. where Tostig had been a kind of absentee earl and when he does go there, he just makes things worse. He's not very successful at all. And in the end, even Harold, his brother, agrees that he needs to go and agrees that Earl Edwin's brother, Morcar, should be the new Earl of Northumbria. That's a big event, I think, mm. because in, in 1065, you've got Tostig Godwinson having to leave the country, very disgruntled. Disgruntled is an understatement. Yeah. And in his stead, you've got a young earl whose brother is Earl of Mercius. So you've got a kind of Mercian power block in the northern half of England and a, a Godwinson power base in the southern half of England. And there is some friction there, I think, some personal and regional f- friction. Yeah. Which clearly is an issue mm. because Harold Godwinson ends up agreeing to marry a new wife. Yeah. He, he's already got Edith Swanneck. Uh, who's his handfasted wife. Yeah he's been
1: with Edith for about 20 years they've got sons and daughters you know Um, but Edith this Danish marriage again which means that you can put it aside or conveniently forget about it to marry somebody who's more useful to you.
0: It's handy really isn't
1: it? Yeah so he marries Edgith of Mercia who was Queen in Wales her husband Griffith, King Griffith of Wales had been um, murdered by his own men and his head handed to Harold to be sent to Edward the Confessor after a rebellion. So, Edith was free to remarry and um, she married Harold probably in early 1066 after Harold had become king. It seems most likely he'd gone to York just before Easter, which is probably when the marriage took place. And it would have been as a part of an agreement with Edwin and Morcar that they would support Harold and the seal of the agreement was him marrying Yeah,
0: you've got that whole political alliance going on, on the death of Edward the Confessor in January 1066, when clearly it is chaos. There's no male heir, but somebody has to rule. mm edward we gather names harold on his deathbed as his heir but how reliable that is i don't know Mm. and the Witten, the english council decide to ratify that but harold godwinson knows as you've said that he needs to have an alliance with the northern earls edwin and morcar because without them he's not going to succeed so that marriage is an attempt to create an alliance to get their support there's no guarantee that would have lasted. No, but it's a start.
1: It is, and it's something that Edward the Confessor couldn't do because he had two powerful earl power bases in Leofric and in Godwin. Yeah, he could only marry one woman, so he chose the eligible daughter of Godwin of Wessex. But that would have put Leofric's nose out. So at least this way, because Harold was the house of Wessex, then he could marry. Um, Leofric's granddaughter and actually unite the whole kingdom in a way that Edward the Confessor couldn't do.
0: The thing is when we get to that point in early 1066 when Harold Godwinson's been made king essentially in theory we shouldn't have a crisis because the leading subjects of England bar one accepted Harold. Yeah. And there's no reason in theory why Harold Godwinson would not establish a new dynasty and rule the country for years to come but the bar one is tostig godwinson the disaffected brother of harold Mm. who has left england in disgrace and is feeling that he is owed much more than he's ever had so who does he go to he goes to harold hardrada the king of norway
1: Yeah, the king of Norway and Denmark, and one who has a proven ability for capturing kingdoms. He'd already captured Denmark, so he would have been a really useful backer.
0: He's a formidable soldier, isn't he? A formidable soldier. Mm. But really, I mean, Harold Haldrada's claim, in inverted commas, to the English throne is negligible. Yes. He was basing it on a promise between Magnus and arthur canute is magnus his father no it wasn't his father it was his cousin his cousin i think
1: it was either his cousin or his uncle
0: it was a relative
1: yeah they'd agreed the same thing that canute had agreed with edmund ironside that if one died the other would become king
0: (laughs) yes is that sort of agreement just a way of ending hostilities so that both sides can agree without conceding anything yeah in any case, Harold Hardrada basically didn't have much of a claim. No. And given a stable English monarchy, he may have blustered and threatened, and he may have been a very good soldier. But without Tostig throwing his his power and intent behind Harold Hardrada, I don't think Harold Hardrada would have got to England.
1: No, I don't think so. And Harold Hardrada may probably never have actually come up with the idea of invading England if it wasn't for Tostig, say, in Come on let's
0: give it a go i think he'd blustered about it in the past mm. in the recent past but i don't think uh, with any confidence that it was something he'd be able to do mm. and of course that whole crisis in the north when harold hardrada and tostig godwinson land in northumberland that is the catalyst for the problems that occur for harold godwinson yes two things spring to mind mm. and this is territory that has been gone over many times by historians and that is that had the northern earls edwin and morcar defeated Hardrada, yes at so the first battle of fulford. what we see unfold later with william and harold godwinson would ne- would not have happened or would not have happened in the same way no
1: it wouldn't
0: it's the defeat at the battle of fulford of the earls edwin and morcar that means that harold had to do something about Harold Hardrada. And he did, really, as much or more than could be expected of any king.
1: Yeah. It's remarkable, the march up to Stamford Bridge, the battle, and then um, having to march back down south after just a few days later. Um, It's a remarkable feat of military... It would have probably been called
0: genius if he won at Hastings. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure he would He would go down as Harold, Harold the Great yeah. had he won at Hastings. And I think as far as William was concerned, and again, it's easy with hindsight, but nobody at the time would have thought, well, they would have been worried about William, but they wouldn't necessarily have, have thought that it would be so easy for William to take control of England. No. I know that it took him decades to stamp out opposition, But in terms of actually winning the country, I don't think many people at the time believed that it would happen. No. William was just Duke of Normandy. Normandy wasn't a massive place. Yes, he called in some favours to get allies. But if he'd been defeated at Hastings, that would have been it. Yeah, he would have had nowhere to go. It wasn't like, you know, if.
1: Harold had been able to have her full army there without the ones who'd been you know the ones who'd been killed at Stamford Bridge supporting him I think it would have been a totally different story because William couldn't get reinforcements. no he'd failed yeah. here it would take a lot to send back to Normandy for reinforcement by which time his if he'd lost Hastings his soldiers would have been hounded to destruction throughout Kent and Sussex so it wasn't like It was a really big gamble on William's part, and he had a lot of luck in the fact that Hardrada did him a big favour by drawing Harold North, using up and exhausting his army to then have to march south again, build another army, and face the Normans.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's so many ifs and buts in 1066. I think one of the things that's often argued is that Harold Godwinson should have waited before he tried to defeat william and allow time for the remnant of his army to arrive from the north and to raise other troops had he done so he would have been in a much stronger position to oppose william do you think that's reasonable
1: i think there's a good case for that he waited in he got back to london and apparently spent a week in london yeah and he's had a big argument with his mum and his brothers one of his brothers said let me lead the army you stay here and gather more reinforcements and I'll go and lead the army. And Harold said, No, it's my job. I'm the king. They won't follow you. Which probably goes back to that thing with Ethelred and Edmund Ironside, where they wouldn't follow Edmund Ironside because he wasn't the king.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So
1: it may be that Harold knew that he had to be the one to lead them. Um, but yeah, I think he probably also was aware of time. This was October. If he waited any longer and winter set in, the Normans would be here until next summer before he could bring them to battle they didn't tend to fight battles in winter, did they? No, no. And he might have had time to get more reinforcements over the channel, William. So I think it was was one of those decisions where you might be better off waiting, but there's no guarantee.
0: No, no. And again, it's easy with hindsight. If he'd won at Hastings, we'd all be saying how dynamic he was. Mm. When others advised caution, he'd gone for it and he'd won. Yeah. So, it very much depends on the outcome.
1: Yeah. And like you say, we can all do it sitting here a thousand years later going, well, I wouldn't have done it that way. It's like, right. So, (laughs) you weren't there.
0: (laughs) I think, though, as we said earlier, the remarkable thing about 1066 is that, and it's not just about that year itself, but throughout that first half of the century, there are so many twists and turns with the English succession and the events in England that you couldn't have predicted the outcome of 1066, as it turned out.
1: No, there's so many. It's like the the possibilities. They, there are so many of them. Yeah. It's unreal. The, I mean, just the thought that Ethelred II had something like, what was it, five or six sons by his first marriage. You could have seen all those sons become king one after the other.
0: You couldn't see it coming.
1: No, none of it. I don't think anyone would have been able to see any part of the first half of the 11th century and go, oh, yeah, I know what happens. He becomes king, then him, and everything's nice and easy. Oh, what do you mean there's going to be some Danes coming in as king for a little while? No, that's not going to. Oh, right. okay, Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. In a way, one of the impressive things about England by 1066 it is actually, yes, there were factional divisions, but there was a reasonably united front. If you think back to the year 1000, where you've got this cultural divide, by 1066, that's clearly still there, but it's not as much of a political factor as it was 50, 60 years earlier.
1: No, it isn't. And it's not, um, when you think back that they were Matica and Danes in 1002, and in ten sixty six, they are becoming one
0: nation. Yeah, they are. And although there are clearly cultural differences which will remain for a long, long time, there is a degree of political unity and a sort of common purpose, mm. which is shown on a number of occasions throughout. Yeah. There were plenty of times when divisions could have resulted in war and or violence, but it never did. So that in itself is quite remarkable. Mm as we said, lots of twists and turns, which eventually take us to this rather unlikely conclusion in 1066. It's weird. Who saw that coming?
1: (laughs) I can't think anyone could have seen any of it coming. (laughs) What, winning the Conqueror won? Oh, and suddenly everything's turned about face. And from the Anglo-Saxon struggle against the Danes, you suddenly get these Norman conquerors. It comes out of left field, that
0: bit. And the really funny thing is you've probably got the Holy Roman Emperor, the Byzantine Emperor and the rulers of Eastern Europe saying, where's England again? Who cares? The Duke of Normandy's become King of England. Yeah, okay, let's move on. It was a ripple to the rest of Europe. I
1: think that's a really good place to stop. So, yeah, I think the thing we've learned about 1066 is that no one could have seen it coming. And it's a great place to end our session today because it's definitely food for thought. So thank you very much, Derek. It's been really interesting chatting with you about this. It's um, given me a lot to think about. I did cover it in Silk and the Sword, The Women of the Norman Conquest. Great
0: book, Silk and the Sword.
1: Thank you. And it's interesting to see the different perspectives and just the thought of how random some of the events were that caused the situation that allowed 1066 and the Battle of Hastings to happen. So thanks for that. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Our next session is a real treat for everyone, hopefully. It's certainly a treat for me because I can't wait to talk to him. Um, We have a brilliant guest in Matthew Harfick the author of the Benicia Chronicles Uh, so I'm going to have to think of some really challenging questions for Matthew I'm Sharon Bennett Connolly
0: and I'm Derek Burks and we look forward to providing another podcast for you next time
1: thanks very much bye-bye